Hi, I'm Steve Clements, and I have some questions. For the countries that have nuclear weapons, how many is too many? And are we witnessing the start of a new arms race? Let's get to the bottom line. Just one nuclear warhead can wipe out almost half a million people. Yet the United States and Russia have thousands upon thousands of these weapons. And seven other countries are armed with nukes as well. Since the weapons created the threat of mutual assured destruction, that's where any country using them basically destroys itself and its enemy at the same time. Maybe they made some sense during the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Or today, with the current Cold War between Pakistan and India. These days, the three biggest nuclear powers, the U.S., Russia, and China are all upgrading these very old arsenals. They claim they want global stability and fewer nuclear warheads, but their actions really say something different. Arms control talks seem to be out of style. These days, the race is to create usable, nimble nukes that can be concealed and launched from anywhere. Think about that for a second. So are we witnessing a new nuclear arms race? Today, we're talking with former Congressman John Tierney, who is the executive director of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and Jacob Heilbrunn, editor of The National Interest, one of the nation's leading journals on current and international affairs. It's great to have you both here. John, let me uh, start with you and ask you, you know, just a simple question. You know, uh, uh, how many nukes is too many nukes, and is America beyond where it should be? Well, look, some of us would tell you that any nukes are too many nukes, uh, given the danger that they present to humankind on that. But let's assume that people are still in the mindset of deterrence, uh, wanting to have enough nuclear weapons so that anybody else who could use them or has them uh, would not use them against them for fear of being wiped out themselves. In that case, you know, in about 2013, uh, the military command of the United States said that we do have too many, that 1,550 uh, that both the United States and Russia are uh, allowed to have under the New Stock Treaty uh, is about a third higher than we actually need, even for deterrence purposes. So, putting the eyes of the military's own statements, yes, we have too many by about a third, uh, and that everyone that you have that more than you actually need for deterrence is a danger or threat uh, in the instance of miscalculation or a mistake, uh, which happens more often or has happened more often than we'd like to believe. And while we don't want to believe that it's a very probable situation or a high risk that any leader of a country would actually use them uh, purposely on that. That's, that's always a prospect, although very, uh, very unlikely. Uh, but the miscalculation and mistake part, I think, things that we always have to be concerned. Well, let me frame it just so one one uh, uh, further element to this, John, before I jump over to Jacob. They, they, you know, we've got uh, Russia, which is a big proprietor of the nuclear weapons scene. Uh, and Russia has been very aggressive in the world. We see China not quite up to that level, but China's there too. We have nations like Iran that, that may very well want to be uh, a nuclear power. That's in part what the JCPOA and the Iran nuclear deal was about, was trying to seduce Iran onto a different course uh, with economic investment. Of course, we have North Korea that would love to find a way uh, to, to get something for the threat of putting warheads on ballistic missiles. So the real world out there is complex, and I understand that. But when it comes from the arm, arms control community, do they think there's been a change in the international terrain where the world is far more dangerous today and so that some of these investments in nuclear weapons are appropriate? Well, no to the second question. Most people that in the arms control community don't believe that more or, uh, or more powerful or more targeted nuclear weapons are the answer to this. Uh, but yes, to the first part of that, where they think that there's been a change in the atmosphere, uh, former Secretary of Defense uh, Bill Perry 
uh, very clearly states that he thinks it's a, is dangerous or more dangerous now than it was before. Uh, and that is because people aren't talking to each other the way that they used to. Even in the worst times, uh, starting with Reagan and Gorbachev, the country started to talk to each other uh, and have ongoing discussions to sort of lower the temperature to make sure there weren't any mistakes or miscalculations leading uh, to a conflict that used nuclear weapons. And uh, since the United States went on the path of trying to have missile defense again, uh, a prospect that had been counted out by the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, uh, other countries have said, well, what if it really works? It doesn't, but they said, what if it does work? Then the only defense we would have is to overwhelm it. Uh, so lots of countries started to upgrade and increase the number of nuclear weapons that we had so that there's been a little bit of a race on that. It's not just the United States that is seeking uh, to modernize, as they say, but to increase the numbers and the, the style of weapons. Uh, but it's all of the other uh, nine uh, states uh, that have nuclear weapons are doing some form of upgrade on that. And I know we like to blame it on Russia or China that they're doing it, so we have to do it. But we've been doing it for a long time, uh, and they are now doing it too. And it, with respect to Russia, they warned us back when the United States pulled out of the ABM Treaty uh, by George W. Bush that it was going to lead to them uh, having an arms race and doing new types of weapons uh, and more sophisticated, powerful weapons. Jacob, you convene uh, intellectually some of the best writers and thinkers that I know when it comes to thinking about the broad dimensions of national security. And I'm interested in where current thinking is and where your thinking is on America's nuclear arsenal. It's aging parts of it. There, there, there have been discussions, as I've talked about, about how to make, you know, potentially, you know, in the last administration, making more usable nukes, which was, you know, a shocking moment for me. But where is your thinking about how our nuclear arsenal and stockpile and our layers of defense should be shaped facing the threats that America has? Well, America has, in many ways, driven the arms race. I mean, we are still remain the only power that has actually used nuclear weapons on another country, which we did in Japan in 1945 to try and speed up the end of the war. The genie is out of the bottle, particularly since the Obama administration led the attack on Libya after Muammar Gaddafi gave up voluntarily his nuclear weapons. Other smaller powers now, like Iran and North Korea, have realized that to ensure their own survivability and to deter a potential American attack, nothing is better than a nuclear weapon. Now, when you get to the, the big power level, Russia, China, the United States, it appears to me that we are, in fact, since the Obama administration approved this massive upgrade of the American nuclear force, we are triggering a counter-reaction. I'm not saying that the Russians wouldn't be pushing ahead anyway, but there are lots of questions here that go right back to the genesis of the Cold War. Are, is the amount of money that we're spending worth it on these nuclear weapons? We're spending money on weapons that are never supposed to be used in the first place. And the, so far, to get to your subtitle, which is brilliant, so far nuclear weapons have kept the peace. The scary thing, as George Kennan, among others, pointed out, who is the author of the Cold War Doctrine, is what if it, the deterrent doesn't deter? Hmm. The consequences are so catastrophic that they're intolerable. We have shrunk our nuclear arsenal. Pulling out of the ABM treaty was a mistake. We should be looking to downsize, not to increase our nuclear weapons. John Tierney, where are you on the subject of putting missile defense on the table in negotiations? Do you look at missile defense as stabilizing and a responsibility to protect Americans, or do you look at it as a destabilizing uh, investment? 
I'll try to make this brief if I can, Steve. It's not easy to do. First of all, we uh, we initiated that letter and we circulated and got the signatures on it or whatever. So our position is very clear uh, that we think the abandonment of the ABM treaty, anti-ballistic missile treaty, was a se severe mistake. It came about because both Russia and the United States had realized that as long as somebody pretended that they had missile defense, uh, the other side would have no choice but to, in their mind, increase the number of weapons they had so they could overwhelm that purported defense. Uh, and that became that. And, and Gorbachev and Reagan and succeeding presidents of both parties uh, all realized, well, that's ludicrous. Uh, we need to limit the number of defenses that you can have to around your capital. And the eventual treaty ended up just one site mm -hmm. could be protected by the site if they could get the system to work, which none of them ever done uh, on that credibly. Uh, and then you saw people start having agreements and treaties that reduced the number of nuclear weapons in the world until along came George W. Bush and his crew, uh, and they pulled out of that treaty. And then you saw Russia say, well, then, man, we're going to have to have new types of weapons that we're doing because we can't expose ourselves. If your system ever did work, that means you could strike us first and we'd have no capacity to strike back because you'd have a defense. So, A, we think it encourages a first strike, but B, it means the only thing we can do defensively for ourselves is to have many, many more than you have so that you then are still hesitant to come after us. So it's been a very destabilizing factor, and you wouldn't want missile defense anyway, even if it did work, because of those reasons. But the more incredible part of this is we've spent $400 billion trying to develop a system since Star Wars that has never you know, proven itself credible uh, and isn't reliable and doesn't work. It's only passed nine out of, a, uh, nine out of 19 or 11 out of 19 tests, and even those tests were scripted so that they're not realistic or real-world conditions and it just is not going to work, and it probably physically can't work. People that used to have hearings on, and physicists would come in and say, this idea of having a system that worked is more theology than it is technology. Uh, but we're spending more and more money, and contractors are making more and more profits, right. huge profits, and everybody keeps moving down this direction on a destabilizing factor or issue to begin with, mm -hmm. and secondly, one that really doesn't even work. So yes, we should put it on the table, uh, it doesn't mean you have to give it up or whatever, but say you'll discuss it or listen to Russia's concerns about it and then expect that they'll have to put some issues on the table that we have concerns about. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you may never get these conversations started again, and it's essential that we have them. You know, I, I think the other side of the argument, I'm going to jump to Jacob on this, would be, you know, I think some people would, would say we, we have, in fact, shown um, that the technology is there. They can say elements of missile defense is what... Uh, Israel has received from us an Iron Dome, uh, and they've shown an ability uh, to, to intercept. I mean, I'm just re representing the other dimension of the argument, and that they look at the latest... you're mixing apples with oranges, Steve. Say it, well... You're mixing apples with oranges. Well, I'm just telling you what they said, yeah. ...ballistic missiles. Yeah. No, and I, there's a system that is not long-range missile, whatever like that, where right. it's a whole different matter, a different atmosphere, right. and a different testing. Right. And while they're not perfect, they're better than the ICBM uh, missile defense is, but right. don't let them... Mix your apples and oranges. Don't let them obfuscate the issue. Well, no, I understand. I just want to say that that's one of the arguments yes. they make. But they also make the argument that what we have today is not enough. And so they're, they're advocating for something called the next generation interceptor, which would move from these, you know, that would involve space and other dimensions of this to kind of do it. So the technolo technology, they say, is rolling forward. But, Jacob, what are your thoughts on this issue? Because, you know, I was very caught in the way you just framed the challenge. 
that that we've let the genie out of the bottle, that there's that there is this, you know, craziness, if you will, and an insanity to sort of looking at where you go uh, uh, logically with this. But once the genie's out of the bottle, how do you get it back? Not how do you get it back, but how do you manage it in such a way that you don't end up in an endless cycle? You know, when you look at the amount of money, as John Tierney just said, about the investments uh, in, in, in something that many people think is wobbly technology. Um, so I'm just interested in what you think when it comes to missile defense, when it comes to investments, when it comes to modernization. How do you get the equities right so that we, it doesn't basically take over the entire Pentagon budget or that you don't end up in a slippery slope to the kind of horrible conflict you just talked about? Well, you, you look, what has fundamentally happened is that the regime that was codified during the Cold War has frayed and maybe even snapping. We had regular consultations with Moscow. We had the Open Skies Treaty. We continually tried to push for more regulation of the competition. Now, when you had the George W. Bush administration, you had the unilateralism, the belief that the United States could do it all on its own. We didn't need to have any treaties with other great powers. We could just behave as we pleased. Now, Joe Biden, I think there is some good news here. Joe Biden is pushing for better relations with Russia, and it appears to center on arms control. So I think, you know, some progress can be made on that front. But you're never going to persuade the hawks in Congress to jettison missile defense. Sorry, it's not going to happen. The success of the Iron Dome, yes, that may be, you know, of limited utility right now, but Politically, ever since Reagan gave the Star Wars speech in March 1983, the right, the Republican Party has been 100 percent committed to the idea of some kind of missile defense. Um, we need to try, and it would be difficult for Biden to even get Congress to approve any strategic arms limitation talks. I mean, it was difficult in the 1970s. Nixon got it through. Carter was unable to get SALT II formally approved. Reagan adhered to it informally. But I would say, you know, we need to, we do need to try and reach some arrangements. We're trying with China as well, who are apparently now embarking upon building a bunch of intercon ICBMs. With North Korea, we're never going to get them to denuclearize. We just need to try and regulate it with some kind of understandings and accommodations. Unfortunately, especially in this country, on the conservative side, and during the Cold War, people thought we should get a first strike capability and be able to wipe out. They actually talked about wiping out the Soviet Union in the 1950s as part of a rollback strategy. So I don't think that you're going to get massive, more massive nuclear cuts in the United States. We already are down to about 3,800 weapons, 1,700 of which are functional right now. Maybe we can pare it back a little bit more, but I'm not too optimistic. Well, thank you. Well, John, let me ask you a question. See, can I just interrupt yeah, you for a absolutely. second? You invited us to be conversational, so yeah. stop me if you think I'm on. I want to touch on the subject that you mentioned about people believing this uh, missile defense system is going to work and they're going to come up with a new interceptor type of thing. This would be the third or fourth iteration of this argument. Every one of those interceptor engines having failed miserably the most recent one being canceled in the course of production after spending $1.7 billion on it because they had to admit it just wasn't happening. And now they're going to buy from the next generation of this stuff. So we've been, since the Reagan era, 
going through this over iteration after iteration, every one of them not testing out successfully, not being credible or whatever. So most people make that argument, but here's the deal. If they don't want to look at the strategic uh, instability issues on this matter and like that, at least we got to say to them, as well as you're being hawks and you always want to build more, 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 you say that you're cost conscious. So let's at least look at this. Why are we building these things and deploying them before they're proven to be credible and effective? Can we at least say that not another dime for deploying these uh, systems until you can show that they would work under credible conditions, under real world testing or whatever? That'll never happen uh, in my estimation and the estimation of physicists who testified on this issue. But at least it says, look, if you do get to that point, then we can have a strategic argument about whether or not it's even smart to do it then because it institutes a, an arms race. But at least stop the spending of this huge amount of money, this wasteful amounts of money that to go to more and better security interests of the United States until you can prove it. But I'm just wondering what you think about the literacy of your former colleagues in Congress and why, you know, when you were there, I'd love to hear what the interaction with both industry and the Pentagon was on your very legitimate questions. Thank you. Uh, as you know, when I was there, uh, I chaired that committee that had hearing after hearing on this thing. So I didn't have a high favorability rating with Raytheon, Lockheed Martin and others. Uh, on that basis, and the military, in fact, is we used to call them out when they lied to us. They frankly would come out and lie about whether or not something was successful or not and, and drag it on that basis. Uh, but this goes on and on, and members have a lot on their plate, and they have limited staff, so everybody can't be an expert in every area, and they tend to focus on whatever committee assignments they have. So the literacy level is not what it should be, not what it used to be. Uh, I mean, most of these younger members, keep in mind, not only didn't they duck and cover, their parents didn't duck and cover. So like the rest of society, some people thought, I thought that was being solved. We had a bunch of treaties that were decreasing in numbers. They all think that, or they think, oh man, I know it's a problem, it's very dangerous, but I can't do anything about it. So we have, what the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation does essentially, is try to educate and inform staffs and members of Congress about what's the current situation and what are the arguments on either side so that they can make a decision and be literate in it. Uh, and it's an effort that continues and, and we're doing more and more every year uh, but it's not up to where it has to be to make these arguments really, really sensible uh, and to have people focus in on the things that Jake and I have been talking about. Uh, you know, Jacob makes the point, as do I, that, you know, there are cost ramifications or strategic ramifications. Uh, and it has gone a long way from the day when we were trying to be transparent and try to be conversant with other countries that had nuclear weapons to today, where both bodies seem to think, oh, the matter we can get at Russia, the matter we could get at China and others, and beat our chest and say, we're not gonna even talk to them, but that's a good thing. It's not a good thing. And even Ronald Reagan knew you can have a lot of disagreements with them, but you have to talk about these existential threats. But nuclear weapons gives Russia a place in strategic matters globally. It also gives the United States. So is there another dimension to nuclear weapons about America's place in the world where we may have other things going shoddy, but you know, nukes make sure that we, we're always there and that we always matter. Jacob? Well, I think it's more a quest for predominance. The idea is that the more you have, the more of an insurance policy you have, mm. the less other countries will be inclined to, to mess with you. But the truth is, it, it, it is, as you point out at bottom, a colossal waste of money. We should be investing in the United States infrastructure. We should not be squandering these kinds of sums on nuclear weapons they contribute absolutely nothing. You could just as easily dig a hole in the desert, in Nevada, 
and dump billions of dollars into it. We're not actually beyond 1,700. I mean, I, I don't know what buying more nuclear weapons is, is going to contribute at this point. We have we have other huge problems, which, by the way, impact our power in the rest of the world. Mm. What about economics? What about our soft power, our reputation, our diplomacy? Um, so let me just ask you, John, is there a way to leapfrog out of this moment that, you know, your your group, you know, the arms control networks basically say, hey, here's an alternative vision that has a real chance of of going along the lines that Jacob suggests? Or is it just basically we're going to be struggling through this with two sides of the aisle? Those, you know, the, the genies out of the bottle, we're just going to have to deal with it. We're going to have to build more. But do you, do you think there'll be a real chance in the arms control community to come back to some of the proposals you've made, you know, and, and as, you know, Jacob said, take some of that money and apply it elsewhere? Well, there's a chance, obviously, to get back there, and that's why elections matter, and mm. it will matter who gets elected, whether they're Republican or Democrat. Look, our sister organization, the Council for a Livable World, used to endorse candidates of both parties with regularity. Uh, back in the days when you had a Jacob Javits and you had an Ed Brooke and those people, because everybody believed in arms control, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, now we can find Republicans out there who are very thoughtful on the issue, very smart on the issue, but they'll say to you privately, I can't bring this up and I can't vote differently because my conference, Republican conference, will be all over me if I do. Mm -hmm. So we've got to find more of those individuals who are willing to step forward. We've got to provide them with the background and information and facts that they can make the case. And there's a sensible case to be made about not wasting the money, not spending it. Uh, but if you're not going to talk about eliminating weapons altogether, and no country is probably going to be at that point for quite some time until they feel that conventionally they're safe as well in the conventional weapons sense. Uh, then at least you can lower the risk, which means have fewer of them, have more transparency, more conversation, so there's not going to be a mistake or a miscalculation. Uh, and, and that's where the real danger lies. And even the American military, as I mentioned to you earlier, says that we can use far fewer in our arsenal for deterrent purposes than we have now. China, up until very recently, was always talking like that. They only had about between the high 200s and the mid 300s of nuclear weapons, and not all of them intercontinental ballistic by any stretch of the imagination, because their theory was we only need enough to stop another country from coming at us. Right. Uh, we don't have to spend the money that makes us more predominant and have more than they do. But Russia and the United States for two, and then India and Pakistan for different set of uh, players, all sort of have this notion that, well, I have to have more, bigger, better than you, not just right. enough to stop you and make you And that's where we make the mistakes. So we can get successful, we can get back to that point if we raise the literacy level on this, that is absolutely asinine to think that more is better. If in that sense you want to say that your predominant right. theory is, I just want to deter others from using them against us. I want to thank you both. John Tierney, Executive Director of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and Jacob Halbrin, Editor of the National Interest. Thanks so much for illuminating this complex topic for us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Steve. So what's the bottom line? First strike capacity, mutual assured destruction, ICBMs, space-based missile defense, the nuclear football. These are not terms that most of us use in our daily life or think about. Global annihilation caused by a nuclear conflict is the stuff of nightmares for very few people in the world. The truth, though, is that nuclear weapons exist, and time doesn't go backwards. They're here to stay. Nuclear ambitions exist, and a nuclear warhead can make a country or even a small rebel group very, very powerful. 
We don't live in a utopia. The nuclear powers will always have these weapons, and their citizens will have to pay for them. The two most important things are, number one, they should never be used, and number two, governments aren't given a blank check to keep ordering more nukes, undermining stability, and sparking a new arms race. And that's the bottom line.